don't care how much media comes and tells you like, oh, you're in right now, you're the moment. I don't care how many celebrities you have in your phone book or following you or in your Rolodex are, at the end of the day, we are literally all we have. For me, as a Black trans woman, it's not enough to just focus on Black issues because at the end of the day, our liberation is linked. Welcome to Love Stories. Uh, This is a place where athletes and activists will get to share their perspectives on love and its modern interpretations. And of course, it is brought to you by Uninterrupted. Um, Again, I'm your host, Sue Bird, and joining me today are three incredible guests. So I'm going to go around the Zoom here. We've got Ashley Marie Preston. Ashley is an acclaimed media personality, a cultural commentator, and a civil rights activist. She is the first trans woman to become editor-in-chief of a national publication and the first openly trans person to run for state office in California. So Ashley, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Next, we have Bami Salcido, and Bami is the founder of the LA-based Trans Latin Coalition, an activist, advocate, and organizer. She is the subject of the documentary Transvisible. Bambi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Last and not least, we have Elle Hearns. Elle is the executive director of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, an organization that works to end violence against all trans people through advocacy, organizing, civil disobedience, and direct action. Elle, welcome. Thank you. What up, y'all? <laughs> um, thank you all so much for joining me. Um, As I mentioned, each of you have dedicated so much of yourselves to activism and the fight for social justice. So I guess I just want to get started by asking all of you, um, and I'll go down the line, like what got you into activism initially and what has that journey been like for you? We'll start with Elle. Well, one, I just have to say I'm a huge fan. So thank you so (laughs) much, um, Sue, for all of your work on and off the court. Uh, I grew up watching the WNBA and being a huge fan of so many of the women who really paved the way um, for women to really have the space to be ourselves and to express, uh, you know, who we are in our work, but also in our personal lives. Cheryl Swoops is a huge hero of mine. So during this season of, uh, I think, celebration, I think so much about her and I was so influenced by her life on and off the court. But, you know, for me, I really found my way into my work, really growing up in Ohio, growing up in Columbus, the 614 is where I'm from. And there wasn't too many people or examples that I had of, of lives like mine. And so I found myself really isolated and really just searching for answers on how I could have more for myself. And, you know, I certainly had some scenarios and situations that had me down on my luck. And, you know, I came out of those really wanting to make sure that other women like me wouldn't have those experiences. And so I came out really just ready to fight, ready to fight for myself, ready to fight for others, um, and ready to fight for a future where uh, Black trans people in particular could see ourselves in the world outside of the confines of what we understood about murder um, and poverty and Um, disenfranchisement. So for me, I really, I say, got my start really in my hometown, really struggling uh, to make a better um, situation for myself, but also wanting to make sure others had those opportunities as well. 
Right. That's awesome. Um, Cheryl Swoops is also, uh, you know, someone I look up to. So I feel you on that. She was my teammate here in Seattle for a year. I know. <laughs> we played on the national team together too. And sometimes I would just be like, dang, that's Cheryl Swoops over there. Mm-hmm. Have my own little mini freak out. So I feel you on that. Um, Ashley, what about you? Um, I would have to say my entry into activism was survival. Um, I came from Kentucky when I was 19 years old and I didn't have language to unpack trans identity, but I knew that I was different and I knew that that difference would create unsafe conditions in my hometown. And so I came to LA, got a job. I took my first swing at adulting. So like, you couldn't tell me nothing. (laughs) Like I'm officially an adult at 19 and I started facing discrimination on the job when I transitioned and I had went to HR and there weren't protections in place. I know recently the Supreme Court made the decision to include LGBTQ protections in the workplace as an extension of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But at that time in 2004, that wasn't the case. And eventually they fired me because I'd become a liability and I was deemed as a disturbance to the environment. Uh, to the workplace. And because of that, I lost my apartment and I ended up becoming homeless. Well, most people in that situation, most cis heteronormative people, I should say, would think, let me pull out the phone book or like go on Google nowadays and just look up a shelter. When I tried to go to the women's shelters, the women's shelters wouldn't admit me because I didn't fit their narrow definition of what it meant to be a woman. And when I was so desperate and so hungry and just I wanted a shower, like a clean place to sleep, I was willing to go to a men's shelter. That's how desperate I was. If it meant repressing my truth so that I could have my basic needs met, I was willing to do it. But they didn't take me because obviously, even though I tried to blend in, I still wasn't, um, I still stood out like a sore thumb. And so I was on the streets and ended up having to uh, turn to survival sex work. Um, and then shortly after ended up using drugs as a social lubricant to numb myself to everything that I had to do in the name of survival. I was one of the few ones who made it out of that. Um, I don't have a record, so I wasn't caught up in the throes of the prison industrial complex. I didn't have some of the health disparities and complications and challenges that many black trans women do, or, you know, black and brown trans folks. And, um, what I was able to identify was that the system was broken. So I was able to show how a lack of protections in the workplace led to me being displaced and homeless, led to me not being able to access social support or services based on my gender identity. And so I made it my mission to figure out how to fix these systems or how to uh, rebuild them all together in a way that's inclusive of all of us. Right. That's amazing. I mean, what I'm already hearing um, is you know, in some ways, as we go through our walks in life, it's, it's, it's nice, so to speak, to have someone to look up to, to have someone who maybe took that journey for, you know, in, in, before us that we can learn from. And here we have two people already. And I know Bammy's story is going to be similar where you kind of had to make that walk on your own. You know, you had to figure that out on your own. But obviously the rewarding part is that now people will get to look at you as the, you know, if you see it, you can be it kind of a vibe. And I, I feel that as an athlete all the time. Um, for me, there weren't gay athletes to look up to. When I first came into the WNBA, it was very much like, be the straight girl, you know, because I, I pass as straight, whatever that means, but be the straight girl, you know, don't be this, be that, the sponsors, the this. And now it feels so good to know that there's going to be another little girl 
who, if she's gay, she can look at me and be like, oh, this has been done. This is cool. So I have so much respect for that. And Bambi, why don't, why don't you share your story? Again, thank you so much for the opportunity and the honor to really, you know, share virtual stage with three amazing people who I admire and I adore. Elle and Ashley are my sisters in the fight. I was close to my 30s when I started being involved in the community. My experiences were similar to what Ashley and Elle have shared, but there was this particular incident that happened in 2002, which was the murder of Gwen Araujo. Uh, and some of you may be familiar with Gwen Araujo or who Gwen Araujo was. Uh, but Gwen Araujo was a 17-year-old translatina who was living in Northern California and was barely murdered and buried alive by four individuals. And seeing this brutal incident that happened to one of our siblings, right? One of my siblings, right? who was doing nothing but living her true self. That touched me very deeply and it not only like enraged me, but it also woke me to, for me to take responsibility of who I was in my position in the world at that moment and how I can influence my privilege to create the changes that need to happen in our community, right? Um, like Elle was saying, right? Uh, our lives are always on the line, right? So. What do we got to lose? So yeah, that's what really like sparked everything in me for me to say like, here we are and let's let's do this, you know? Yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot of similarities. Um, and right from the, the start, I can tell you guys are, you know, saving lives. And I mean, already I'm like in awe of that. Um, so yeah, so what we're experiencing right now, um, you know, could really be described as like that watershed moment for social justice and not just in the United States, but, but all over the world. Um, so we'll start with you, Ashley, this time. Um, what does this current movement mean to you? This current um, moment is an opportunity to really prioritize intersectionality, like making sure that these movements are intersectional and that the only way that we will be able to defeat uh, white supremacy, systemic anti-Blackness, xenophobia, all of these toxic structures of violence um, is when we learn how to build coalitions with one another. And so we've seen that there's been this, asymm this asymmetrical warfare that they've been implementing in which we've been playing this game of whack-a-mole. So when one group of people gets their rights, they bash another group over the head. And then when the other comes up for air, they bash them and it, it goes back and forth. And so we know that when marriage equality passed, they gutted the Voting Rights Act. We know that even the day that we got the um, Supreme Court decided in our favor for LGBTQ protections in the workplace, they refused to hear cases and arguments on uh, qualified immunity. And so, which would mean for those who don't know that we can actually go after law enforcement who participate in misconduct and who have murdered people and got away with it. And so I think it's understanding that it's all of us or none of us. And we're having conversations around intersectionality that are unprecedented. And for those who may be watching who don't know what we mean when we talk about intersectionality, 
we're talking about um, the reality that for some of us, our identities overlap with multiple marginalized groups. So say for instance, as a black trans woman, sexism, racism, and transphobia, they don't line up and wait their turn. They strike simultaneously. So identity markers, don't exist independently of one another, but each informs the others. And so when we're talking about, for instance, Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ movement, those have been the two communities that people have been talking about lately, but not acknowledging that queer Black women are at the helm of that movement, not acknowledging the fact that um, there are Black LGBTQ people. And so what does that mean for us? And I think it's when we intentionally center the most marginalized among us everyone will win. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing I think of is how amazing that, you know, what's happening now is happening during Pride Month. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it actually like, it's almost poetry in that way that that it's worked out. Um, and it kind of speaks to everything you just said. So, you know, Elle, you can, you can kind of touch on that as well. Like, what does this m movement mean to you? But also, what are you seeing in terms of change? Where we are now... For me, it means that we've returned home. Uh, the reality is that Black people have always been on the front line to resistance in this country as we've known it through not only colonization, but uh, just the many battles and warriors that existed pre-colonization. And so uh, I think to see so many people uprising during this time means that we are ready to return to a place where violence is not ruling our lives that we're ready to return to a place where we understand that the humanity of our people means much more than capitalism uh, or buildings. Uh, I think that we are ready to return to uh, the reality that Black trans women have always been leading our movements. And, uh, you know, during Pride Month, I think it's so important to just touch on the importance of not only Marsha P. Johnson, but so many of the women who've created the space for us to even exalt Black Lives Matter. Most of the women who were really at the front of that weren't just queer women, it was Black trans women. And so I think so much just about how our movement is saying we are ready for something new, but we also have a model, we have an example, we have people that have already led us here that we should follow. I think, you know, what I'm hopeful for is that we will not use the spark that has been ignited by the murders of Black people um, continuously as our entry point. My hope is that we use these moments to actually understand that there's something structurally happening prior to any of these murders happening. And that's where the real opportunity for interruption must take place. Uh, our resistance has to be in many forms and it has to take many shapes to make sure that there is a redistribution of wealth into the communities that need it the most. And so people always ask me, what can I do? What can we do to interrupt the murders of black trans women? And I always tell everyone in order for black trans women to no longer be murdered, then the conditions of black communities have to be better. Those conditions in those communities have to improve because the reality is the same thing that's happening to black men or happening to black women who happen to be cisgender, it's happening to trans people. And so there's no separation of these realities. It's happening to all of us. It's just happening in different ways. So we all have to enter into our movements ready to learn and ready to throw down before we're 
able to say her name or before we're able to say that, uh, you know, this is another case of, I think so much about Tamir Rice, who did not have the opportunity to dream or to even resist or protest. And so for all of the efforts that are happening now, we have to create the space so that uh, what happened to him, what happened to Samaya Dove, what happened to Brittany Nicole Kid Sturgis, that those things don't continue to happen to the people, not only that we love, but the people that are really shaping our future. Yeah, learn and throw down. That's going to come up later. I'm just warning <laughs> you now. I like that. Um, Bambi, what about you? Uh, I think for you, you know, what are you hoping to see in the future? You know, the, the world that I want to live in, um, to be honest with you, um, I don't think I'm going to live to to see that world, you know. Um, but I am, you know, what I can do is contribute and do the best that I can uh, in order for others uh, to see that world, the world that we've all imagined for so long, right? What is important to understand is that, you know, and, and I want to specifically talk about, you know, the position that trans people holds in the world at this very moment, right? And even this global pandemic and even this uprising, right? Um, we know that we are the most poor, right? There's studies that say that, you know, trans people make about, you know, less than $10,000 a year, right? Um, employment discrimination, you know, all of those things that we already know, right? Um, and the criminalization of trans bodies, right? Um, and so there's there is a reason, you know, why we are positioned where we are, even today, right? And how this global pandemic has, it really is setting us even further behind. It's great that this uprising is happening and, and uh, you know, it's great that, you know, people are, um, are, are holding their power, right, uh, individually, but I, I, I definitely agree with what Ashley has said, right, uh, in terms of this collective uh, effort that needs to happen. I think if we all not give up, in other words, like, if we have to go to the streets every single day, let's do that. But in order to create the changes that need to happen, we need to organize and we need to strategize and we need to make and, and we need to be intentional and be consistent in order to create those changes because just going out on the streets is not going to do the work that needs to happen if there's not a strategy and it, 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 there's not a clear direction. It's not, if there's not clear demands, we definitely need to obviously defund the police and, you know, invest in our communities in particularly invest in trans lives, right? Because again, we have been the most marginalized of all the communities simply because of who we are. So I definitely agree with what my sisters have said. I just I just want to say that it's also about recognizing the sacrifice and everything that those who've come before us have done. I feel that if there is ever a detriment to the movement, it's the unwillingness 
to give credit where it's due and have uh, proper succession planning. And I just look at Bambi and I hear Bambi's story, but I remember being 19 years old, 20 years old, sitting in Bambi's office at one of these organizations as a client and just being like, one day I want to be like that because I didn't, unfortunately in my space, I didn't have other black trans women that I could see doing this. I mean, some of them were there, but they just weren't accessible in that space, right? And so the thing is, I remember thinking, like, I'm a fighter. Like, all of this, like, polished, buttoned-up talk sounds good, but when the rubber meets the road, I throw down. Like, I'm from the street. And so the thing is that, for me, I didn't find refuge in organization. I found refuge in activism like Bambi's. I found refuge in people who were just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so when you talk about not knowing if you will be here to see that world, please know that the seed that you have planted is here and it's growing and it's thriving and we're continuing to water and nourish that in other people. And I think that that is what makes the trans community so special you done started some stuff, Sue. You done started <laughs> some stuff. Because that's what makes us so special is that we we understand that. We understand that you never, I don't care how much media comes and tells you like, oh, you're in right now. You're the moment. I don't care how many celebrities you have in your phone book or following you or in your Rolodex are. At the end of the day, we are literally all we have. You know what I mean? And so. For me, as a Black trans woman, it's not enough to just focus on Black issues. I have to care about undocumented folks or folks seeking asylum and refugees. I have to care about incarcerated folks, even though I don't have a record. I have to care about reproductive rights, even though I can't produce children. I have to worry about all of those things because at the end of the day, we're getting to this place where we understand that our liberation is linked. It's linear. It's, con uh, it's connected. And so that was it. I just wanted to take a moment to like lift her up because the thing is that that's not lost upon me. And it's my social responsibility when I'm in these spaces to speak the Bambi Salcedo's names, to speak the Miss Major Gracie Griffith names, you know, to speak about Marsha P. Johnson, you know, whose Al's organization and hard work has been dedicated to. It's important that we don't just lift ourselves up as individuals, but we also give credit to those who put us in the position that we're in to be able to lead effectively. Yeah, well said. And something tells me, you know, years from now, people are going to be naming all, you know, all of your names in that same light. So I can already feel that. Um, something, you know, I feel like is being talked about a lot now is kind of like the language of the movement. And as we all know, words are extremely powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so Elle, what would be like, how would you describe what is, or not what is, what should be the language of the movement and, and what people should be echoing? Because I think this is a, a really good opportunity to kind of just, have this conversation and so people can hear it, you know, right out of your mouth. The language of the movement has to reflect the language of the people. Uh, and so for me, I try to always ground myself in who I was when I entered into the movement, not who I am now based off of what I've learned from movement. Um, you know, I was a girl who just literally came into 
movement off the street. I was released from jail with no shoes and socks on. So for me, it was that experience that I always try to return myself to. We weren't using words like intersectionality to talk about um, oppression and how systems of oppression were inter in, uh, affecting us and interacting with our lives. We weren't using words like capitalism or uh, white supremacy or abolition. We knew it was uh, I don't know if I could say this, but we knew it was F the police, you know, it was always FTP, you know, so that was the language that we use in, in Milo where I'm from, you know what I'm saying? So for me, while I certainly utilize particular language because it's required in order to do my job, I always maintain that I'm a black woman first. And so whatever the language of my people is, whatever uh, is authentic and unique to us is how I try to not only relate to the community and to the movement, but also how I try to relate to myself. And one of the reasons why I do center Blackness in my work is because I think it is so important for Blackness to become overshadowed and pushed out of the way, especially as we talk about what's happened with Pride, and we talk about the Stonewall Rebellion and how people like Marsha P. Johnson, uh, Sylvia Rivera also, how those voices and those names and Stormy and Bayard Rustin and how we have all of these greats who were completely overlooked in our world history. And I think so much about how there's a great need for us to move into a particular direction without having the analysis uh, that is actually pushing our movements forward. And so Black resistance is pushing our movement forward. And it is a humanist movement, but you can't actually move to a humanist movement believing that anti-Blackness is a way of life. So there has to be a complete interruption of these things. And one of the big things that's super important to understand is that it has to be interrupted culturally. Uh, not just in the form of policy and people going out to vote or going out to protest or, you know, even being on this platform. Like it means that it has to happen culturally in who's in your community, who's in your friendship circle, who's in your workplace. That's the type of advocacy that actually creates the space and where humanity can be recognized. And so one of the things that I'm clear about is we're very far away from that. You know, we're performing activism in this moment. But what I'm hopeful for to go back to that is that we'll still be doing our due diligence around our performance in 12 months. And as someone who's seen popular movements emerge and new movements come and new voices come over the last 10 years, I'm very clear of how there are ebbs and flows. And so my hope is that we will keep it consistent. And one of the ways that I think we will keep it consistent is if we make space for the language of the people who are leading us and who are new into our spaces. Because one of the things that we do is we try to change people to assimilate into the system of movement as it is, as opposed to understanding the movement is with those who have everything to fight for because they have nothing to lose. And all of those two, and just really quick too, like I have to say this, all of that is fantastic, but we're not responsible for dismantling the system we didn't build. 
there's this notion that we have to be responsible for dismantling all of this and being responsible to survive at the same time. So obviously you have three powerful women on this panel who can do that because that's our calling. That's what we subscribe to, we've signed on to. What I'm very clear about is that we have to stop putting so much emphasis on black women and black femmes and like these people to be responsible solely for that. It's people like yourself, Sue, who are like, you know, I have a platform. Let me go ahead and use that platform to not only have a conversation that's centered in the experiences of trans women of color, but also I know what you're doing behind the scenes. And so behind the scenes, just really being intentional about doing some of that work for us and being able to trust Black leadership so that when we say that this is what we need, then knowing that we have allies that are going to throw all their resources behind it. Yeah, um, that is like so well said because um, what we're going to talk about next is allyship. So it's the perfect segue. And something that I've learned in just like my, you know, not short by any means, but just like my little life, if you will, is um, especially as a white person, kind of like knowing how to educate people on how to get educated. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like pointing them in those right directions. Cause that's to me something that, again, that I've learned that is just so super important. And as athletes, especially in my league, um, the WNBA, which, you know, quite literally (laughs) is the intersection of race, gender, sexuality. um, We're constantly evaluating like how we can bring about that change. And so for athletes specifically, but also um, for society, like at large, what does allyship mean in 2020? And then, uh, you know, Elle and Bambi, you're definitely going to get your chance at this as well. But just continue the conversation. Yeah. When I think about what um, allyship means in 2020, or some people refer to it as being an accomplice, I immediately think of Angela Davis. And so she has a quote in which she said, in a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And that was the birth of the uh, anti-racist work movement. And so you had people who came out of that, like Jane Elliott, who's a white woman who gathers <laughs> gathers um, a lot of these um, other like white people who are um, essentially, I refer to it as the epistemology of ignorance. So this intentional, militant, aggressive bypassing of cultural understanding of how black and brown people have been historically oppressed in America because it disrupts the delusion. um, It disrupts your delusion of what it means to be a good person. And so we have to get to a place where we divorce ourselves from these notions of what it means to be a good person um, and start looking at the system and the ways in which Uh, white people have uh, benefited from anti-Blackness and xenophobia and all of these other forms of violence that we experience. And so that means um, not asking us to educate you when you have access to these resources directly. If you do ask us to educate you, I've always said that education without compensation is exploitation. So thinking about ways in which you can contribute to that labor, right? Because it's not just the labor of educating, but it requires us to to dig into our own trauma 
and experiences and things that we haven't always been able to heal from because we've been so busy trying to save our lives and the lives of those in our community. So another way that you can educate yourself and economically empower a black or brown person is to purchase works. Um, We have a great deal of academics and scholars and people and even people who are neither of those, but their journey and their experience is so compelling and it definitely opens up hearts and minds. And so thinking about how you can do your due diligence by educating yourself before you come to us with, with all these questions so that when you come to us, you should come with an open heart and open mind, ready feet and helping hands. I mean, I think what is important is for for the movement or the different movements, I guess, right? Because there's multiple movements. There's the immigration movement, the women's movement, you know, Black Lives Matter, like the multiple movements to really, um, I guess, come together and work together. It's really what Elsa, right? Like listen to the people who are leading the movement, right? But I think for us who have been sometime in the movement, I think we also need to be humble and be able and willing to to listen, right? Because, you know, not like, yes, our way has worked for some of the things that we've done, right? But then there's obviously we have to open space for new ideas and for new blood to really be um, supported, right? Um, so, so that's really like, that's part of my hope, right? That, because as I say, right, like for me, like I don't think I'm gonna see the world that I, I want to live in, but I know that there's, you know, there's young and beautiful people and vibrant people who are leading movements, right? Like actually say, right, um, if we open our minds and our hearts and those who have the economic stability, if we also open our pockets, right, we can all transform the way we are situated. We know that money is power. Again, trans people are the most poor of any other, right? And so how do we build that? How do we build infrastructure for that in 20 years, we can see that our community, right? Um, at, a, uh, at a different place, right? Like Ashley's just say like, right? There's academics, there's different people within movements, how many trans people we know that have a master's degree? You know, I just got a master's degree. I asked around here in Los Angeles and they were able to tell me two trans women who had a master's degree here in Los Angeles. And in order to create those changes, all of us need to participate on that. And if we are not, then move away because we are coming into our power and we are you know, doing whatever needs to be done, right? And so I wanna say, for those of you who want to be allies or want to be comrades or want to be, uh, I don't know, whatever you wanna call yourselves, if you wanna be a sibling to ours, then say what you mean and mean what you say and take action to that. You know, I so I don't believe in allyship. I'm gonna just be very, keep it all the way 100. Just, I don't really believe in that. I feel like that's a very performative thing. And so uh, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, we welcome our members who uh, we are a black trans organization, but our membership is uh, a collaborative one where we welcome people of all 
uh, races and genders and class to be informed and educated about what it means to actually be in the struggle for Black trans liberation. And so we practice what I like to refer to as collaborative solidarity. You know, performing allyship means that you might do one act of good in your entire life. And so my thing is when I think about liberation, I think about devotion and I think about love and I think about undoing harm because we know that loving means that you are making yourself vulnerable to being hurt. Uh, and so part of what collaborative solidarity is, is really a calling to stay forever in relationship, to stay forever in practice of what is necessary to undo these systems that certainly encourage uh, the harm that we experience that causes us to go out and have to resist. And so what people who are marginalized, what people who are at the forefronts of movements and their causes are at the forefronts of movements need is much more than just a one-time donation. Uh, you know, those donations actually need to probably happen for the rest of your life if you have access to that type of wealth. Um, you know, I think even just on, on, a, on, a, on a level of, you know, Bambi's questioning around how many of us have degrees you know, how many of us were able to actually finish high school without actually being pushed out because of our attempts to not only transition, but to just be our authentic selves without the standards of excellence being applied to us. And so I feel like allyship encourages um, standards of excellence that sometimes are out of reach. I think we really have to perform um, in a way that humanizes that it's okay for people to be exactly where they are. And we have these resources available to ensure that you can meet your own standard of excellence, not the world. I think so much about the black women who have helped me and taught me everything that I know. I wouldn't be where I am without them, but I also know that what we need is much more than, than allies. And so, you know, that's my call to action consistently in my work and in my life is, are you in this thing forever or are you only here for part-time? Because I'm not looking for a part-time love. I'm not looking for a part-time liberation. I'm looking to be free in this life, in the, in the next one. And so, you know, even with Bambi saying she doesn't know if she'll, if she'll live to see it, I hope that you are starting to see some of the pieces and some of the fruit of all of your labor. I wouldn't necessarily be here if you would not have uh, still been here fighting and figuring out all of the ways that you could continue to contribute to our community. And so um, I just invite people into our bigger picture. It's so much bigger than what we know right now. And I think even just from my emergence into this larger um, movement, um, I've seen so much growth and I've seen so many new voices emerge on a local and national stage that I know if we weren't influencing collaboration, it wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. I just kind of want to touch on something like really quick too. Um, it's kind of along the lines of that Black friend, right? Like, you know, there's always the Black friend that's responsible for being the moral compass Mm -hmm. through which you get all of your information from and resources. And so we say, um, acclimate yourself with these communities at large, right? So that you're realizing that we're, that we're not a monolith. 
the truth is that there is no one correct way. There just isn't. We have three different ways of working across this panel and each of them work. Each one of those strategies, the notion that allyship is not real has been working and it's been able to um, birth this amazing organization who's doing all this work. You know, Bambi understanding that, you know, the way that we talk about these things, you know, we're not adding uh, citizenship and um, incarceration and those who are caught up in these systems to this larger conversation. Because when I hear trans, trans community doesn't really mean anything to me because I hear white trans people when I hear trans. So it's not enough for Ashley Marie Preston personally to talk about the trans community because the trans community, as someone who had a very public blowout with a famous white trans person, you know, um, <laughs> that doesn't mean nothing. Like my blackness, I think Elle said it earlier, my blackness uh, supersedes like most of that. My blackness, most of my experiences are informed by my blackness. And so I think that because I know that to the people who are listening, who really want to help, they're going to get a lot of, I don't want anybody to get confused. And I don't want anybody to say like, okay, this is the only way that you do that. And if it's not, because I see that all the time on Twitter, I see it all the time on Facebook, somebody will hear somebody speak about something and they'll be so militant in it because they feel that by backing up this thing that this one black uh, activist said that they're somehow performing their non-racism. And so they're trying to like assage their own guilt, their own white guilt. And so just laying that out there, that there is this um, cornucopia of information and knowledge and this wealth of wisdom and strategy that works. And so the beauty of our community and our cross-collaboration is that I don't have to agree with everything and I'm still going to show up and figure out how we, um, we meet our collective objective, which I think at the end of that, Black, Brown, Indigenous, you know, trans, uh, cis, hetero person uh, of color, you know, what our collective goal is access. We want to be able to thrive uh, economically. We want to be able to have access to health care. We want housing to be something that's not seen as a privilege, but as a right. We want all of these things in our respective community because the people who would benefit from these services and resources, they don't have a politic. When I was on the streets trying to figure out where I was going to get my next bill, uh, my next meal, when I was given head for $20, when I was sleeping under like wherever I was, I did not care about any of that. I didn't have that politic. All I knew was that I'm hungry. I'm cold. I want somewhere to sleep. I want somewhere to go. So like, I think it's that, that understanding of community and who we're actually serving that will bring us together. We're not a monolith. And so the thing is, is when I say um, there are different ways, I'm talking about people, Black folks and brown folks specifically. This isn't because you will have white people who will hear that, just like many people saw me in media recently when I was holding LA Pride accountable for the fact that they had this march uh, that was like Black Lives Matter solidarity, but Black leadership here weren't a part of that you know mm -hmm. none of the people and and I mean all black whether it's black lives matter whether it's independent organizations and so definitely just to be clear because we have to spell things out obviously we don't want to set anybody up for failure yes We're talking about <laughs> black leadership so black because people will be like Ashley said Ashley said <laughs> no. so 
And None then I'll be like, well, listen, y'all got to talk to Ashley, okay? No, <laughs> because we even do it with ourselves. Like, let's be clear. There's this beef that we have with each other. And it's the thing that, again, when we talk about divide and conquer, white supremacy and systems of anti-Blackness can only thrive through a well-executed strategy of divide and conquer. So it will make us get out here and fight for grant money, uh, fight for crumbs, you know what I mean? Which again, my organization actually raises money to give to these other organizations who are grassroots so that y'all can do y'all work effectively. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to. And so like, I think that we just, again, have to be aware and awake to the reality that the number one objective of white supremacy outside of destroying uh, communities of color and building wealth on our backs is to divide us. Two quick things before we go. Um, I'd be remiss if Elle, I didn't put you on the spot a little bit, uh, really just for our audience. No, it's going to be a, a softball, I promise. Okay. Um, why don't you tell our audience, because sometimes we take these things for granted in our own lives, who Marsha P. Johnson is. I mean, here we go on the hoodie. We got some representation right here for the Stonewall riots. Marsha P. Johnson, for those who don't know, uh, Marsha is no longer living. She's no longer with us. But her spirit and the essence of her work and sacrifice is certainly uh, what we have available to us today through so many Black transgender people in the United States who are pursuing liberation and freedom for themselves in their communities. Marsha was a, a historic figure during the Stonewall Rebellion and Stonewall Riots, which took place in uh, New York City in 1969 in response to the targeting of queer and trans people uh, at a local bar called Stonewall. Uh, during that time, trans people were subjected by police brutality uh, due to laws that existed around uh, people being dressed in attire that did not match their perceived gender identity. Uh, and so that bar was targeted. And uh, there's so many different stories around who was the first person to throw a punch and throw a brick instead of fire. Uh, and Marsha P. Johnson happens to be one of them. She was present at those riots, but she was present throughout the continuous growth of the movement. The 50th anniversary of the first Pride March is actually on June 28th. And so the Marsha P. Johnson is celebrating not only the legacy of Marsha P. Johnson, but of so many who contributed to making sure that the resistance continued in honor of the sacrifices that were made there, uh, and also the sacrifices that were made in the Compton Cafeteria riots, and the sacrifices that were made by trans and queer people during the civil rights movement. And so Marsha was a staunch advocate, um, you know, during uh, the AIDS pandemic. Uh, she was definitely a believer in freedom for all. Uh, she certainly did not believe in the police. And so I think there's been a whitewashing of her narrative. There's been a whitewashing of her truth, which is why it was so important for us to reclaim her as Black trans people and subsequently creating the Marsha P. Johnson Institute uh, to continue the great work that she laid out and that so many of us in the Black liberation movement have continued uh, in honor of ourselves. Amazing. Um, so yeah, so now we can talk about the hoodie a little bit. Um, but before we do that, so I know the donations from the sale of this hoodie are going to go to your foundation. So Ashley, what can people buying this hoodie know their money is going to? Their money is going to be going toward the true ideal of community collaboration. And so You Are Essential is 
an organization that I launched um, amid the COVID-19 crisis. Um, what I realized was that a lot of the big kids on the playground, AKA the larger organizations, were sucking up all the resources and there was so much money moving, um, but the people who were being disproportionately impacted were getting zero of those dollars. Um, And so, in fact, they were just contributing it to their CEO's uh, six-digit, you know, salary. Um, And so what we had the opportunity to do was listen to the people on the ground. These were actually mutual aid networks who are, you know, who've been around. This isn't a new concept, like mutual aid networks, uh, even like the Black Panther Party, the free lunch program in America, that was started as a mutual aid network that the Black Panthers created. So just trying to figure out how to support these groups who often uh, work in partnership with these grassroots organizations who have a 501c3. So then I thought, instead of it just being only COVID-19 related, what if we actually create these social impact campaigns that highlight these organizations who are already doing the work and they don't get the visibility that they deserve and we start funding them with grants directly. Um, so we're not trying to duplicate services. We're not trying to, we're simply accessing resources that are already there and uh, coming through with a strong funding stream so that they don't have to be wiped out and overshadowed by these larger organizations who are just performing advocacy. Um, and so what you're supporting by buying a hoodie is that you are essential is supporting uh, the black community um, and different, that means so much, but black trans people, black cis heteronormative folks who are um, along poverty lines, people who are incarcerated, undocumented people, the farming community, um, uh, intimate partner uh, violence organizations. We know that there's been a lot of focus on quarantine and how that's actually impacted uh, survivors of um, violence in their home. And so we're supporting um, just all of these organizations, again, who've been doing the work, but we're making sure that they can keep their lights on and keep their doors open and keep doing meaningful work. Um, And then in addition, also, we're making sure that to those people who are donating, we introduce them to these orgs so that they can have, I think Elle said it so beautifully earlier, like that there's a relationship there. Yeah. Bambi, so what can the people buying this hoodie know their money is going towards? So again, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be here. And I want to obviously invite the whole world to buy a hoodie because it will support the amazing work that our sisters here in our organization obviously is doing. The Transatino Coalition is a national advocacy organization that started in 2009. So we are in our 11th year. You know, we initially started to support trans immigrant women who were living in the United States, whether they were in immigration detention, trying to seek a better way of life, or in the outside trying to also get find a better way of life. When we initially started, we sort of like thought of like this macro level work that we can influence in doing to change the structures that continue to marginalize us. At that time, there were two trans-led national organizations that were not necessarily including the voices of trans-Latin immigrant women. So that's how we started organizing and really 
figuring out ways. And did, we did like really amazing work up until 2015. You know, we created the first report really highlighting the specific needs of trans Latin American women who were living in the United States in collaboration with the University of Minnesota. You know, we were doing just macro work, right? And in 2015, our national group got together and uh, decided that in order for us to address the specific needs of our community, uh, because as we were trying to organize in the different places across the nation, one of the things that we were seeing is that our community were not receiving the basic needs that they needed. And so our national group decided for us to also move into doing service provision. So we now have the Center for Violence Prevention and Transgender Wellness in Los Angeles, which is the service provision arm of our organization. And we we have a multiplicity of programs. We have a re-entry program. We have an anti-violence project. We have a dropping space. We do legal services. We do policy. We do. We have a transitional housing program that is called the Hope House. We also support trans people who are in immigration detention, people who are in prison. I mean, we do all kinds of stuff. So whatever support that we can get from people is definitely welcome. A lot of the donations that we get, we use it to, because those are non-restricted, right? We support trans women who are in immigration detention. We send them commissary money for them to buy stamps so they can communicate, you know, with us and with the world. And also, um, you know, we pay for people's medications or phone bills, whatever, whatever we can use the money for that is non-restricted. So whatever you can support us with, we definitely can use it or our community can use it. Um, Elle? So when you buy these dope hoodies, essentially you're obviously supporting the great work of those on this call, uh, but the communities that are connected to our work. The Marsha P. Johnson Institute works to protect and defend the human rights of Black transgender people in the U.S. And so we support so many different organizations and individuals through our work as a national membership organization, whether that's through our digital training to support those learning how to be in community with Black trans people and in collaboration, or whether that's teaching those how to take action or how to attend a protest or uh, conducting Know Your Rights training for Black trans people and those who want to take action with us. Uh, in 2015, I organized the National Day of Action for Black Trans Liberation Tuesday, and really what I saw is that there was a lack of infrastructure and support for Black trans people who did want to organize, um, you know, to find justice for the causes that were happening in their communities. And so it became very clear that there needed to be an organization that was certainly supporting those efforts. And so I knew I needed much more infrastructure to be able to support so many people who were relying on me and the organizing work that I was doing. And so we've created the space where we can provide direct resources to people through our COVID relief effort, uh, or you know whether it's through our artist fellowship, we recognize that artists have the ability to tell the true story of our time and also to give us a look into the future. And so we're doing a lot of different things to make sure that our community's needs are being met and that we're actually continuing to be the influencers that, uh, you know, the world steals from. But this time we're in control of what we're giving as opposed to people taking. And so uh, I'm really excited and really proud of the collaboration and the partnership that we have with Uninterrupted. And 
Uh, looking forward to all that's going to come from the amazing partnerships here on this call and all of the new people that will be forming relationships with us as a result of it. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me personally, I think you just hit it. I'm so proud to be just on the call right now, but to be a part of this conversation, it's an honor to be here, to be honest. And I feel inspired, you know, as a member of the WNBA, you know, I was mentioning that earlier, the intersection that we have in our league. Um, for those that don't know, we're actually headed to a bubble where we'll be finishing or not finishing, we'll be starting and playing our season. And obviously with what's happening in our country right now, you know, our league is 80% black women. And so there's a lot of feelings and what are we going to do? And do we want to be in the bubble? And, and a lot is happening. And I just have to say, I'm going to that bubble. And what I'm taking with me is collaborative solidarity, organize and strategize and learn and throw down. I'm just telling you right now, those are the three things that I've just now learned that I'm taking with me. Um, because like I said, we're all... We want to do something impactful and, and, and it's not always easy. We have, you know, all these women, it's like 144 four of us and we have the platforms, but it's about like, you know, kind of like whittling down to like what's going to be um, the best way for us to do this. So I've learned so much. I'm so thankful to be here. So thank you to Ashley, Bambi and Elle for joining me today. For everyone out there watching and listening, please be sure to head to the donation link in the description to support Athletes for Impact. Um, in their work to create change for the LGBTQ community and beyond. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Sue Bird. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Happy Pride Month.